going to ask you to turn with me in the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Second Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in verse 3, and I'll read through verse 7. <clears throat> this is God's word, please give it your full attention. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. One day last spring, I was in our kitchen, and from the next room, I heard a commercial playing the song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. I said to myself, you've got to be kidding me. They are playing Christmas songs in April now? Well, I, as I continued to listen, I realized it was a commercial for allergy medicine. The idea being that spring is a wonderful time of year and allergies can certainly make it miserable. Now, if commercials are meant to grab your attention, it certainly grabbed my attention, but man, that's annoying to use Christmas songs in April. We do want Christmas, the Christmas season, to be the most wonderful time of our year. Something that we, at least in our culture, long for. We want it to be full of happiness, laughing, excitement, fun, good times with family and friends. But that can be actually detrimental to expect that in the Christmas season. It can be detrimental to your emotional, even spiritual health, to have that high standard for what you want your Christmas season to be. You strive for a wonderful Christmas every year, but due to factors outside of your control, too often, our Christmas season is characterized by stressful schedules, full responsibilities, too many responsibilities, too many parties, too many events, awkwardness and conflict in our relationships with family and friends, and loneliness and grief over broken relationships in our lives and the loss of loved ones. It's why depression is often an important issue during this time of year. As Christians, we definitely too want to enjoy the festivities we want to enjoy the gift-giving, the traditions, the parties, the frivolity. But our goal in the Christmas season as Christians is not to be happy, not to have fun. Our goal is to receive comfort, to be comforted by the promises of God, to be comforted by what God did 
by sending his only son into the world to dwell in our midst, to save us. We've been talking about comfort every week through this Advent season. It is our theme this year. I looked up the dictionary definition for comfort. Dictionary says that comfort is to give strength or hope or to ease grief or trouble. In that definition, you see that to talk about comfort is to imply that suffering is there. If life was perfect, then we would never need comfort. It's because we suffer, it's because we live through tribulations, afflictions in this fallen world that we so desperately need comfort. Jesus said, as we saw a couple weeks ago, Jesus said, in me you have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. And that's the tension, that's the, the life of a Christian. To have peace in Christ, but tribulation in the world. First, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is probably one of the best known passages on comfort. Spiritual, deep spiritual comfort. It speaks of the kind of comfort that God gives, and it speaks of the purpose of him giving that comfort. And that's what we're going to look at today. You probably noticed I said the word comfort a lot as I was reading that passage. The word comfort, either as a verb or a noun, shows up ten times in only five verses. And it's really an unusual start. This first couple of paragraphs from 2 Corinthians, this letter he wrote to the church in Corinth, is really unusual compared to his other letters. It's unusual because the need for comfort was very much on the mind of Paul as he wrote this letter. We know that because if you read the next section, I stopped reading in verse 7, but verses 8 through 11 talk about a time of severe suffering that Paul had just endured. He says, let me begin reading in verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He had some kind of near-death experience. We don't know what it was. Commentators, scholars have tried to compare where he was when he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, to what we know about his life in the book of Acts and the other letters that he wrote. And there's some ideas of what suffering, what kind of suffering, what kind of deathly trial he went through, but nobody's quite sure. Nothing seems to quite fit. All we know is that he says, I was so utterly burdened beyond strength that he despaired of life itself. That's serious. That's, that's the, the darkest, most difficult experience you could probably describe. We don't know if it was some kind of serious illness. We don't know if it was some kind of tragic accident. We don't know if it was some severe persecution that he had to endure. But we do know that he was crushed. And that's actually a literal translation. He was crushed by a trial that was beyond what he could, felt he could endure. But then he says in verse 10, God delivered us from such a deadly peril. On him we have set our hope and he, that he will deliver us again. The Lord delivered him out of whatever that dark experience was. 
And he came out of it with a stronger faith, a renewed faith, and a more certain hope that no matter what he may have to face in the future, God's going to deliver him again. And he ends by being filled with praise. Actually, that's what we see even in this passage. He starts in verse 3 by saying, Blessed, praised be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. His trial led to a renewed faith, a deeper faith, and a heart filled with praise for God. Well, that helps us to begin to, to see what is God's purpose in asking us to walk through a dark valley, a time of suffering. Last week, we looked at John chapter 6, and the comfort that we focused on from John chapter 6 is that God is absolutely, totally sovereign over our salvation from beginning to end. Our salvation didn't begin when we decided to follow Christ. Our salvation actually began, according to Scripture, before creation, when God the Father chose us to be part of his people and gave us as a gift to his Son that his Son might redeem us. And God has promised that he will complete that work of salvation. Because he started it, he will complete it. We can be comforted in knowing that our salvation is 100% the work of God. Well, this week, what we're going to see is that we also draw comfort that as part of that plan of salvation, part of his work of sanctifying us, part of leading us towards our ultimate goal of glorification in Christ, part of that is suffering. As a matter of fact, a very important part of that is suffering. And what the Word of God teaches us is this thing that kind of doesn't sit right with us when we first hear it, even after we've heard it many times is that it, God is absolutely, totally sovereign over our suffering. It is God's will that we suffer. We kind of choke on those words, don't we? But I want to talk about that, because that's what the Scriptures teach. And if you can get over your initial gut reaction to the idea that it's God's will that we go through suffering, you're going to find that there's incredible comfort in that truth. One purpose... We have many purposes. Matter of fact, I think when we get to heaven or when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to be able to look back on our life and we're going to see this wondrous network, this wondrous tapestry, a network of consequences that each episode of suffering that God asked us to go through, what positive impact it had on our lives, on our families' lives, and the lives of the people around us and on the world at large. We have no idea how God is using our suffering. We have no idea what all, pur all the purposes are behind the suffering that he asks us to endure. But we know some things from Scripture. And one of the things we know about his purpose in our suffering is that it is to reveal his glory to us and to teach us to trust in him more completely, to depend upon him more absolutely. Paul writes here that after this severe, deadly trial that he went through, he speaks of God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I think what he's saying here is, I have, I've always known this, but I have come to know this in a deeper way, that God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. You see, he would have known and believed this based on his good scriptural training. Paul was raised in a good Jewish family. He was taught the Old Testament. 
He knew the New Testament well, not only from his upbringing, but he had been trained in the, the, the greatest training that a Jewish leader could have. He was an expert. He was a scholar in the Old Testament and a rabbi and a leader among the people of God. He would have believed it, but now he's experienced it because of this deadly trial that he's going through. He not only knows it intellectually, he not only affirms it intellectually, but now he knows it experientially, that God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort because of what he's just gone through. You see, he would have known what Psalm 103 teaches so clearly. Psalm 103 verse 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Paul understood God is his father. And to see God as your father puts your suffering in a whole new light. What is the look on God's face as he leads you into a valley of suffering? It's not some kind of glee at seeing you suffer. It's not some kind of look of anger, retribution. You know what the look on his face is? It's a look of a loving heavenly father, a father of mercies. A God who so deeply longs to comfort you in the midst of your suffering. That's the look on his face as he leads you into the valley of suffering. Anybody who has been a parent understands this. There are so many times that as a parent that you ask your children to walk into suffering. There are so many kinds of suffering that you as a parent administer or indirectly administer to your children for their good. We know what it's like to be in control of our child's suffering while at the same time having great compassion for that child and grieving over watching them hurt. When you discipline your child, you're actually causing them to suffer to one degree or another when you offer loving discipline. And you don't discipline your child, hopefully, if you're a good father, you don't discipline your child with a look of anger and retribution on your face. You don't look at your child with a disdain. If you're a loving Heavenly Father, there's grief on your face as you discipline your child because you have compassion on them. You hate to see them suffer, but you discipline them. You put them through it because it's for their good. A more simple example is when you take them to the doctor. Have you ever taken your two-year-old or three-year-old toddler to the doctor and put them on that cold metal table and had the doctor pull out that needle and get ready to stick it in their arm? You know they're going to hurt. You know they're going to you know they're going to scream and they're going to look at you like, "How could you do this to me?" But you're going to let it happen because it's for their good. When you go to the dentist, you know if they're going to have to fix your child's cavity, they're going to scream, they're going to hurt. But you know that they have to go through it for their own good. You have compassion on them as they suffer. You hurt for them. It's like the father says, what I'm about to do to you is going to hurt me more than you. Don't ever say that. Your kid never believes you. <laughs> but as a father, you know there's a truth there. We will, with our limited will, our ability, our power, our authority as a parent, we will a certain amount of suffering for our children for their good, all the while hating to see them hurt and be in pain. It's us learning how to love our children the way that our Father in heaven loves us and hates to see us when we suffer, but wills it for our good. 
You see, suffering for a Christian, and some, especially young Christians, really have to grasp this and have to work hard to grasp this, that suffering for a Christian is never punishment for your sins. It feels like that. When you're going through something really hard, something really difficult, there's this instinctual reaction like, why is God mad at me? What did I do? But Christ already died to pay the judicial punishment that your sins deserve. God will never punish any of your sins twice. Christ already died for your sins at the cross. He paid the judicial penalty for your sins in full. So that's one thing you, if you have been born again, if you've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, if you're redeemed by Christ, then you know that if you're suffering, it's not because God is punishing you because he's angry at you as an angry judge. You know that can't be the case because Christ took care of that at the cross. That means that if you're suffering as a Christian, it's got two possibilities. Either it's loving discipline of a father to train you and teach you and lead you from your sin, or it is discipleship training to train you. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. Look at what Paul learned through this trial, this horrible trial that he just endured. Listen to what he learned as he talks about it in verses 8 and 9. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He knew that his suffering had that purpose to teach him to rely upon the God who could raise the dead. He felt like he had a sentence of death, but God, he put his faith in God. He trusted in God. God brought him through it because God is the one who can even raise us from the dead. What trial can he not bring you through? See, that's what suffering does. Suffering, suffering strips from us our self-reliance and deepens our trust in God, and that is a very good thing. Of course, we're constantly and absolutely dependent upon God every moment. The Bible teaches us that every breath you breathe is a gift from God. You're totally dependent upon God for the next moment of your life, let alone everything in that moment. But you know what suffering does? It makes you aware that you're absolutely, totally dependent upon God. And that's the blessing of it. There is no greater thing that you have in this life than your faith in God. It's the greatest gift that God has given you is faith in Jesus Christ to save you and to sustain you and to lead to your glorification. That's the greatest gift you have. And what scripture teaches is that that faith gets stronger through suffering, not through prosperity. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is refining your faith. God is deepening your faith. God is teaching you to trust and depend upon God in a way that you have never done it before. You do not realize when your life is prosperous and healthy and good how much you are being self-reliant. You don't realize it. But when you suffer, all of a sudden it becomes real. How much you need God. And he is the father of mercies. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
suffering is the will of God for your life, for your good. He doesn't enjoy seeing you suffer. He grieves as he sees you suffer. But he leads you through it for your good, for your sanctification, for your endurance, for your character, for your hope, for your faith. Like we said, we've been saying every week here, we do not find the source of our comfort in this life. That's what the world does. The world goes to friends. The world goes to family. The world goes to their job. The world goes to drugs and alcohol. The world goes to sex. The world goes to entertainment to find comfort. But they find that it's only temporary, extremely brief. They blink their eyes and it's gone. And they're empty again. And they're hungry for comfort again. But our comfort is in the very nature of the God that we serve. Our comfort is in who God is, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. That's where the source of our comfort lies. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says in question four, actually asks the question in question four, what is God? And the answer to that simple question, according to the catechism, is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's the source of your comfort. That the God that you serve is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, in his power, in his goodness. He will not change. Everything else around you, you will change. Everything around you will change, but God will not change. And there's great comfort in that because he is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. In verse 4, Paul says he comforts us in all of our affliction. That's intentional all. There is not any trial that you may have to go through, and I know you can think of some pretty terrible, awful trials, but there is not any trial that you may have to go through that God is not able to deliver you and use it for your good. He comforts us in all of our affliction. Like God said to Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? The source of your comfort is in who the Lord is. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Or as God said to Jeremiah, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? You see, if Jesus died for your sins and paid the judicial penalty for your sins so that you could be accepted and reconciled to your God and adopted into his family so that you're a child of God, then in every situation, even in the darkest trial that you have to endure, God is for you. He's for you. All of your afflictions, all of your suffering has his sovereign, loving purpose behind it. And his comfort is always available and it's always sufficient whatever, for whatever need you have. Paul reflects upon a lifetime of lessons that he endured. None of us here have really suffered the way that Paul had to suffer, especially for the gospel. And in chapter four, or chapter four, so we're just three chapters later, Paul reflects on what God has taught him through not just this most recent suffering, but through all the sufferings he's gone through. And this is how he describes himself, his associates, and ultimately all of us. He says, but we have this treasure, the light of the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of In the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we are all, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. We are jars of clay. We are weak in the flesh, but we have the hope of the gospel within us. And God uses our suffering to lessen our dependence upon this jar of clay flesh that we live in and to deepen our dependence upon him. And what that implies, what Paul implies there, is that this is for the sake of others. Why did God ask Paul to suffer? He said, death is at work in us. We're going through these deadly trials for you because death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And that brings us to the second purpose of our suffering. It's to draw us deeper into who God is and to closer to him in a relationship with him. But the second purpose that Paul refers to here in our suffering is it's to train us and equip us to comfort others. Very strong message in this passage. In verse 4, Paul comforts us in our suffering, he says, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We are comforted in order to become comforters. Of course, when you say comforter, you think of the Holy Spirit. You think of God. God is called the comforter in Scripture. So what does it mean to be godly? It means to become a comforter like the God that you serve. To comfort others with the comfort that you first have received from God himself. In verse 6, Paul says, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Catch that purpose statement. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Your suffering, again, there's so much you can't know about why God has asked you to go through this trial. But another thing you can know for sure is that your suffering has a ministry purpose to it. It has a missionary purpose to it. Our suffering is spiritual boot camp. It's intense suffering To prepare us, to train us, to reach out to others who are suffering as we have suffered. Paul says we're not to be reservoirs of God's comfort. We are to be conduits of God's comfort. And there's another aspect of how our comfort ministers to others that I don't want you to miss. Is that it is through taking the comfort that we've received from God through our salvation, through our relationship with him, through our dependence upon him taking that and ministering that comfort to others, particularly within the church, this is how the church grows stronger. Not only do we in our spiritual life grow stronger through the suffering that we endure, but the church grows stronger as we share in that suffering. That's a consistent teaching of Scripture. God unifies His church and deepens our bonds through our suffering together and comforting one another. It's actually in the word itself. The word comforter in the, in the Greek of the New Testament is paraclete. And that word literally means to be called to one side, to be called to someone else's side. That's what it means to comfort somebody, is to come to their side, give them a hug, care for them, be there with them. 
You can't give them answers for their suffering any more than you know the answers of your own suffering. Only God knows those answers, but you can be there for them. Be called to their side. Actually, even the English word, comfort, is actually a combination of two Latin words. Calm is the word with or together, and forter is the word strengthen. So strengthen together. That's what comfort means. It's inherently a corporate activity. I want you to chew on that a second. Your suffering is inherently a corporate activity, not an individualistic one. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 12, he uses this extended metaphor of the human body, the church being like the human body, especially in our unity, our interdependence. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 24 to 26. He says, God has so composed the body that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. Did you get that? If one suffers, all suffer together. We see that in the metaphor of the body, don't we? I mean, if you drive a nail through my hand, it's not like my other hand or my foot or my knee or my nose is going to say, no big deal, it's just a hand, that doesn't affect me. Your whole body's going to suffer. It should be that way in the church. No Christian should ever suffer alone. No Christian should be lonely in the dark night of your soul of your suffering. It's inherently a corporate activity. Even more than that, verse 5, in verse 5, Paul says, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And so you say, wait a minute, what is, how does my suffering relate to Christ's sufferings? Wasn't Christ's suffering done at the cross? Didn't he suffer once for all? Isn't his suffering over? He's now glorified with the Father in heaven. How does my suffering relate to Christ's suffering today? Well, he's not talking about Christ's unique atoning suffering that paid for your sins on the cross. That's not the suffering of Christ he's talking about. He's talking about the suffering of Christ that, he, that Christ himself referred to when he knocked Paul, when his name was Saul, knocked him off of his horse when he was going to attack the church to persecute Christians on the road to Damascus. And he said, the risen Christ said to Paul, Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? When you attack my church, you attack me. When you throw my people into prison, you're throwing me into prison. When you put my people to death, you're putting me to death. I am the head of the body. The church is my body. When the church suffers, my suffering continues. That's what Paul was referring to, that kind of a difficult statement he makes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Did you catch that? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. You see, it is the mission of Christ to spread his message of redemption through the suffering of his church, to show the glory of God, to show what faith in God and absolute dependence upon God looks like as his people suffer in his name. To suffer is to be a missionary. To suffer is to fulfill Christ's mission until he returns. That we proclaim his gospel and glorify him. You see, 
the corporate nature of our suffering is seen even out there in the world, even the world in, their, in common grace. There's a sense that when you go through one kind of suffering, you are best suited to help somebody else who has suffered, who is suffering in the same way that you suffered. It's the whole principle behind AA. But in the church, it should be so much more intense than AA. Good example of this is Johnny Erickson Tata. Most of you probably know her story. She was a teenager, a vivacious, beautiful, uh, gifted teenager who suddenly was, had her life transformed tremendously by a diving accident. She dove into some water, hit her head, broke her neck, and was paralyzed from that point on for the rest of her life from the neck down. And if you've ever read her biography, then you know that she went through a very dark night of the soul after that, deeply questioning her faith, deeply questioning God. But you know what? She came out of that dark night of the soul, renewed in her faith, praising God. And if you want to read somebody's perspective on suffering that will totally and articulately and beautifully express this idea that God is totally sovereign over her suffering, over your suffering. She's one of the most articulate testimonies to that. And you know what else? She has probably the best worldwide ministry to disabled people today. God used her suffering for the sake of the body, the church, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel. A few months ago, we started a new ministry here at Oakwood called Grief Share. The whole purpose of Grief Share is to take people who have been through the deep grief of losing a loved one or some other kind of deep grief and get them together around the scriptures and prayer to find strength in who God is and what he has done. Your suffering has a purpose. And you know what? Another way in which this, this corporate nature of our suffering this is why prayer is so important. Paul says in verse 11, again, after talking about this terrible suffering he went through, in verse 11 he says, You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. He's highlighting how important prayer is for us to suffer for the sake of the body. Now I say this because we're Americans, and I'm probably about as private as anybody here in terms of my own personal life. And we have this strong tendency that when we suffer, some of us more so than others, some people are very open and, and, uh, and to an uncomfortable way about their suffering, but probably more of us are very private about our suffering. When we go through something hard, we tend to retreat, and we tend to, to nurse our own wounds, and we don't want people to know. And I know there are some people in this church that won't people, ask people to pray for you when you're going through time of suffering. I want you to know that if you're suffering and you're retreating into your corner and you're not sharing it with the, the body of believers and you're not asking them to pray for you, you're harming the, the, the unity of the body of the church. It is prayer that is meant to bond us together as we suffer together. You're not meant to suffer alone. Ask your brothers and sisters to pray for you. Sure, don't be annoyingly exhibitionist about it, but ask them to pray for you. Ask them to enter into their suffering insofar as they can. It's good for the body of Christ. This Christmas may not be the most wonderful time of this year for you. It may be an actually a very difficult time for you right now. 
but it should be the most comforting time of your year. By God's plan and design, our lives are a cycle of affliction and comfort. Get used to it. If you're a new Christian, get used to it. Your whole life is going to be a cycle of affliction and comfort, affliction and comfort, affliction and comfort. It's going to feel like you're one of those gerbils running in the wheel. But in your heart, you're going to be going deeper with God. You're going to be relying upon him more. And you're going to be better suited to minister to the church and to the world because of what you're going through. God's sovereign purpose in your suffering, no matter what kind of suffering it is, is first of all, that you deepen your trust and dependence upon him. And secondly, that you be trained and prepared and equipped to take the comfort that you've received from Christ out to the world that so desperately needs it. A few, a few of you probably have seen the movie or have heard about the new movie out that's based on the Christmas song that the praise team led us in just a little while ago. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. If you know the story behind it, Harry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote that song after uh, really just trying to deal with his own grief over losing his wife in a tragic accident and thinking that he is, his son had, had uh, been endured a, a deadly wound in the Civil War. But I love those last two refrains. I'm going to read them to you and close with this. He says, and in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But then the deeper truth comes to him in the midst of his suffering, and he says, then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep, the wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's our comfort. Let's pray. Father, this is a busy time of year. We're stressed. We're stretched. There's so many people coming at us, so many things that need to be done. Lord, help us to rest in the comfort that you give us through Jesus Christ. It is so joyful to celebrate his coming and to know that his coming only began the work of making us like him. Lord, we want to trust in you more deeply, and we want to be used of you to take that comfort to the world. Father, help us not to try to anesthetize our suffering, our pain. Help us look to you to find a stronger faith and a deeper love to share with the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.